how can you tell a counterfeit from a real bill? Counterfeit money from a real one. I was talking to a buddy of mine. He's a, a, a cop uh, out in Holland, and he kind of ran this uh, kind of exclusive team. It had like some county guys that were handpicked. It had some state guys that were handpicked. Uh, and then it also had um, some uh, city of Holland. And he kind of worked this team that was kind of all over the, the state of Michigan. And they had some ties to some federal agents as well because of the work that they were doing. And so I was like, all right, if anybody's ever come across uh, some fake bills, right, counterfeits, uh, he would. And I was like, all right, John, like, tell me, man, how do you guys find them? How do you like, how often do you come across? He's like, actually, law enforcement almost never finds fake bills. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, yeah no, we don't ever, we don't ever. Uh, he said, you want to know who finds fake bills? Bank tellers. That's who finds fake bills. Bank tellers find fake bills, not because they get extensive training in what makes a fake bill a fake bill. It's because they handle the real thing all the time. I was uh, reading one bank teller talk about this. He said uh, at his bank, they would find fake bills uh, one or two times a month. He said, we'd, we'd be counting money every single, he said, uh, counting machines, they would use those, but they have to have uh, a, a count three times before they can uh, give something out or put something in an ATM or anything like that, make a transfer. So two of those times had to be by humans. One could be a counting machine, but two had to be humans. And he said, when he's flipping through money, even if he's not looking at it, he can tell whenever he touches a fake bill, something is off with the texture, with the weight, with the feel of the paper, with the, 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 the color on it. He says, I, I just know. He says, in fact, if I'm flipping through and I find one, he says, I can actually close my eyes and flip through a hundred bills. He says, I'll be able to find it again. Why? Because he handles the real thing all the time. If you want to know what kind of faith you've got, if it's real faith or if it's counterfeit faith, the only way to know is by engaging with the word. By knowing that so well that when the counterfeits come, and they do. I mean, there's all kinds of things that our culture's trying to push on you as a gospel of like, this is the thing that's going to bring you life. This is the thing that's actually going to bring you fulfillment and purpose. Do this, buy that, believe this. If you want to know what's true and what's not true, you got to handle the real thing all the time. So I asked Dan Gallagher if I could show you his Bible, all right? Uh, Dan uh, comes to the uh, nine o'clock service. Uh, Dan's one of our local guides. Uh, Dan actually trains uh, a lot of our local guides as well. That's like our one-on-one -on -one mentoring uh, relationships uh, that, we, that we offer. And uh, Dan's Bible, um, I can open up literally anywhere. Underlines here. Oh man, not much in Leviticus, Dan. Okay, oh, judges, look, he's got it in. Everywhere I turn, stuff's underlined. Now, he said to me, uh, he's like, I don't actually um, write a lot in my Bible, which is baloney, because like everywhere I turn, there's stuff written in here. But he said, what I actually do is uh, I write it in my journal. So he let me borrow his journal too. He's got his Bible. Uh, this is not obviously the original cover. He's used it so much that the original cover fell off. He had it rebound once. That was starting to wear out. So then he got this like beast, like awesome cover that sits on it. And, and then, then he's got this. 
Now, what I loved about this, he let me borrow it. I'm not going to read anything from his, but like, those are notes from a message that Jordan gave a few weeks ago. He's got scriptures all in here, little notes. It's from his time uh, uh, studying scripture on his own. It's from notes that he takes when he's here at church. Dan's like been around the church and Jesus and the Bible for a long time, but he's still learning. This is like recent stuff. When the world brings counterfeits to Dan, Dan's going to be able to know. That's fake. That's not right. Why? Not because Dan like knows a ton about counterfeit religions and fake gospels, right? Things that promise us one thing but actually can't deliver. It's because Dan spends so much time with the original. And this is one of the things that Paul wants the Colossians to understand too. What, what are the evidences of real faith? What's it actually look like when we engage so much with God, his word, the Holy Spirit, learning about the Bible in community, studying it ourselves, that allows us to recognize when the world is telling us a lie that looks like the truth, you can pick it out. It all happens when we engage with God and his word, when we start to recognize the type of fruit that the Christian tree actually produces. And that's one of the things that Paul wants for the Colossians all throughout that. But the Holy Spirit knew that this wasn't just something that the Colossians needed to hear. The Holy Spirit knew that in 2023, a small church in Grand Rapids, Michigan called TLC was going to need to hear this as well. We're going to look at a few words this morning that quite honestly, you've probably heard, especially if you grew up in church, a lot. And it would be easy to kind of think to yourself, all right, been there, done that, heard that, I'm good. I simply this morning want to ask you to give God permission to speak into your heart, into your mind, into your life, maybe something that you think you've got on lock or know really well in a new and fresh way this morning. Can we do that? Let's get at it. Colossians chapter one, we're going to read verses one through eight this morning. Colossians chapter one, verses one through eight. Grab your Bibles, follow along with me. Paul starts off in the same way that he starts off most of his letters with an introduction. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. So he and Timothy are kind of writing this together, all right? He says, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now he moves into this thanksgiving and prayer that he has for them. He says, I always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. It's not just happening there in Colossae, guys. It's happening everywhere. Just as it has been doing amongst 
among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras or Epaphras. I always said Epaphras, but now they're telling me Epaphras. All right, guys, it's Epaphras from here on out. Learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. Now, uh, what I want to do is really we're going to focus on verses 3 through 5 in just a minute. But before we get there, I think that there's something that's really basic but also really important that Paul does to the Colossians in his greeting, okay? And I think it's important that we understand why it matters to us today as well. The first thing, and we see it in verse 2, is he says that they are God's holy people. They're not just their own anymore. We actually learn that each of us that our followers of Jesus have been bought with a price. Christ's death and ultimately his resurrection paid the price for us. So we're no longer our own. We're God's. That means we've been adopted into his family. Now, I understood this growing up and as I became an adult, but I, I feel like I really understood it when I actually became a parent myself. Yeah, do my kids ever drive me nuts? Do they do stuff that I wish that they didn't do? Uh, Are there times that I have to discipline them? Yeah, of course, all that stuff. But you know what? There's never a time when my child is not my child, when I wouldn't do anything for one of my kids. Man, I'll go to the wall for one of my kids. I won't give up on one of my kids. I'll always be fighting for them. And when... Paul says to the Colossians, you're God's holy people. You need to hear that yourselves. If you've given your life to Christ, man, you are adopted as a daughter of the king, as a son of the king, and God will never give up on you. He is always pursuing you. His grace never runs out. His love never runs dry. He is for you. You are his. And then he says they are God's holy people. Now that's interesting, holy Holy means to be set apart and to be perfect. But how can he say that? Is it just like a nice, like, greeting, you know, like, oh, I'm going to, because Paul's never been to Colossae. He he, he hasn't met these people uh, in person. He's writing them a letter because of all the cultural pressure that they're experiencing, which is really coming from two sides. One, hey, just like add Jesus to all the rest of, like, the gods that you, you know, serve and worship. And the other is like, yeah, uh, you need to do all these things along with Jesus. Do this, do that, say this thing, do this ritual, uh, uh, don't eat this, don't touch that, right? So you got like two different sides and the Colossians are feeling the weight of these two cultural forces trying to like tell them what they need to do. And, And Paul's like, no, no, you need Jesus. And you need Jesus alone. And as Paul is explaining this to them and why, why he's telling them this, it's something that he needed them to hear that not just were they God's people, but they were God's holy people. Now, holy means set apart and like perfect. They're not yet, okay? Is Paul just like trying to like puff them up a little bit? You know, I don't, he doesn't know them, so like tell them something nice. Like if I saw Jordan, I was like, what's up extraordinary dude? right? Which isn't really true, but, you know, it's like a nice thing to say to him, you know, because it sounds way better than, what's up, very average middle-aged dude, right? Like, I, I'm kidding, Jordan, that's so mean. Where, I don't know where he's at. He didn't hear it in the first service, but he let me make fun of him. No, uh, it sounds kind of like Paul's just trying to puff up the Colossians. 
God's holy people. We know they're not holy yet. In fact, in in chapter three, he's gonna tell, tell them all kinds of things that they're doing that they shouldn't be doing. Things that they need to take off, stop acting that way, stop doing those things, stop saying those things. And he's gonna tell them some things that they need to start doing. So they're not holy yet. So why does he call them holy here? Is he just puffing them up? No. It's actually something that Paul does, not just for them, but for you too. You see, friends, you too are God's holy people. You see, there there is a concept that we call already not yet. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul actually talks about this in the letter that he writes to the church in Rome. And, And he says that they've been called and they've been predestined and they've been justified and they've been glorified glorified or glorification is what happens when we die or when Christ returns and makes us perfect. It's a similar kind of uh, word to holy. They kind of mean a lot of the same things. Paul uses the word glorified in past tense. I don't know about you, but I don't feel very glorified, to be honest. I've got all kinds of things in my life that God's still working at. Things that I'm going to need to take off that I'm still doing and things that I'm going to need to put on that I'm not doing, and you are the same way. So why does he call them holy, and why does Paul actually say that uh, to the church in Rome that, that they're already glorified in past tense? Why? Because God has declared it so. It's already, but not yet. God sees us as what we will become. And so no matter where you've been, where you're at right now, how imperfect you feel, you need to understand something. If you've given your life to Christ, God has already declared you to be holy. What God has promised he's going to do, even while you're still in process, will come to fruition. And so at the beginning of the letter, Paul wants to remind them, yo, I know you're not where you know you need to be, and we got some work to do, but remember this, you are God's, And what he has said of you is more true than what you're actually experiencing right now. And TLC, you need to hear that as well. Now with that caveat, let's jump into verses three through five, which is what I wanna focus the last number of minutes of our time together. Let's just read it one more time together. Paul says, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love you have for all God's people. That faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. All right. If you grew up in church at all, if you've been around church very much, you've heard those three words, right? Faith, love, and hope. Well, that's how he says it here. Most of the time we hear it as faith, hope, and love. Uh, In fact, I would guess there's probably uh, 70% of the houses in here have a piece of driftwood with that written on it somewhere, like hanging in your house, right? Faith, hope, and love, right? Paul lays out these three things as three anchor points to know what is an authentic Christian life. Three anchor points that we hold on to when we're feeling the culture that we live in trying to sell us on fake gospels, trying to sell you on what's going to actually bring you hope or 
life or purpose or happiness or contentment, right? Because our our culture is showing us and talking about that stuff all the time, from the commercials that we see to the stores that we shop in to all the stuff around us. We've got all kinds of ways that our culture is trying to show us that. Or other times where our culture is like, yeah, you got Jesus, but make sure you do this, 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 and this as well. Otherwise, you're going to miss out. How are we going to know what true faith looks like? Have you ever wrestled with doubt? My, my sister, uh, when she was young, she was racked with doubt. Uh, she prayed to ask Jesus into her life like dozens of times because she was afraid that like maybe the first one didn't, you know, really take or the second one didn't really take or I've wrestled with doubt. I still have doubts today. Doubt is not the absence of faith. Doubt is actually shows that you have some faith. But how do I know when my doubts are actually showing me that something is lacking and when do my doubts show me what I actually have is true? That's part of what Paul is talking to the Colossians about. He's explaining to them that their faith is real because they have these three things that they can look at and say, man, those those things anchor me to the realness, the truth of this gospel of Christ that I've come to believe. And so I want to take a a quick look at those. Now, I know that if you grew up in church, even if you were like, man, I haven't been in church in a really long time, but I hear those three words, faith, hope, and love, you're like super churchy, super, those are like religious-y words. It's really easy to be like, all right, man, I kind of get it, I know it, or it's kind of, I'm just going to, don't tune out. Instead, I want you to tune in because these three words were so important to Paul. Almost every letter he wrote, he talked about these three anchor points for a life of faith that will allow you to hold strong. And so I want to take a quick look at those. The first one is, of course, faith. That's what he talks about. What kind of faith do you have? Now, it matters what we have faith in, okay? Paul's assuming that their faith is in Christ Jesus. He literally says that. I've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, all right? So yes, you have to have faith in the right thing, in Jesus, his death and resurrection on your behalf, that he alone is the one who can rescue you, that you can't do it yourself, that there's no other God out there that can add on to the work that Christ did. We have to have faith in the right thing. But Paul's less interested in having faith in the right thing, but more in the kind of faith that we have. Let let me try to explain this, okay? Uh, A few years ago, actually it was a number of years ago now, they were translating the Bible into uh, the Maasai language, the Maasai people uh, from Kenya, all right? And they were translating this word faith or belief, and the word that the translator had used uh, was a word that basically meant to agree to. And one of the Maasai elders said, this is not a good word, translation. And he goes on to explain this. Listen, this Messiah elder contended that the word chosen was unsatisfactory because it meant to agree to. He said that that was similar to a hunter shooting an animal with his gun from a great distance. Only his eyes and his fingers took part in the act. He said, we should find another word. 
For a man really to believe is like a lion going after its prey. His nose and eyes and ears pick up the prey. His legs give him the speed to catch it. All the power of his body is involved in the terrible death leap and blow to the neck with the front paw, the blow that actually kills. And as the animal goes down, the lion envelops it into his arms, pulls it to himself, and makes it part of himself. This is the way the lion kills. This is the way a man believes. This is what faith is. The kind of faith that Paul is talking about is not a faith that you can experience from a distance. It's not a faith that just knows facts that live in our mind. The kind of faith that Paul is talking about is an intimate, personal, up close, get dirty kind of faith. It's a faith that you possess, but almost possesses you as well. The kind of faith that Paul is describing is a faith that possesses and owns the recipient. Does your faith feel like that? Does your faith feel like that? Is it that kind of thing that no matter what happened in your life, you wouldn't be able to shake it? Or does it kind of ebb and flow with your feelings? Is it a faith that just lives up here like I know the right things to say and so I just kind of let it sit there? Or is it a faith that feels like it just courses through your entire body? You can taste it, smell it. It lives inside of you. If things went really south for me and I was no longer a pastor, there's a lot of folks that are like, well, of course, T. Like, you're, you get paid to have faith. But what if I wasn't? What if I wasn't a pastor? Would I still have faith? I had to ask myself this question. What kind of faith do I have? I literally was asking myself this question this past week. And I realized, I don't think I could ever not believe And not because I know a whole lot, and I do. I've had a lot of schooling. I've had years, I get paid to study the Bible. That is like one of my greatest joys. I love it. I still feel like I won the lottery to get to do what I get to do. But it's not because I know a lot. I actually think I could probably convince myself out of that. The reason that I could never give up my faith in Jesus is because of what I've experienced. The times when He's spoken to me so clearly, not with an audible voice, but I knew was impressed so deeply on my heart, on my mind. There was no way the things that I've seen him do in my life, times when it didn't make sense. That's why I know I could never give up my faith, pastor or not. I've just experienced too much. What kind of faith do you have? That's the first anchor. The second anchor is love. Now, it's interesting here in Colossians, uh, he uses love second. Usually it's faith, hope, and love, right? But he says love number two. And if you're a child uh, of the 90s, it's not just, you know, love, like what do you love? It's also how do you love? But all children of the 90s also then say, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. 
no more. Also, all y'all Gen Zers with David, I heard, learned how to pronounce his name, David Guetta, right? Did I say it right? I said Guetta earlier because that's what it looks like. What is love? Now it's like this like banger dance thing. I'm like, come on, man. Like it already was a banger, okay? We didn't need Guetta or whatever his name is to redo the dumb thing. So what is love? That's actually the right question to ask. Uh, when Paul says, look, I, I've heard about your faith, and we fully understand what kind of faith he's talking about there. Then he says, and I've heard of your love. What, well, what, what does that mean? What is love? It's the right question. The, the word that Paul uses is this word agape, okay? Agape is, is the word that is used for the kind of love that God has for us. Now, in this particular context, Paul's talking about the kind of love that they have for one another in the church, and this agape love that God has for us is a love that's unconditional. It's a love that's sacrificial. It's a love that's marked by a choice, not simply a feeling. Paul actually answers that question in another letter that he writes to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians 13, we're not going to go there right now, but if you're like, man, okay, what does real love actually look like? Love is an action. Love is a verb. It's something you do not simply something that you feel. Now, I'm not saying you should never feel anything, but feelings are not the point. In fact, quite honestly, when you don't feel like it, that's when you know if you actually love. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not prideful. It cares about the other. It lays its life down. Paul gives us the definition. And love is the second anchor point. The first is faith. Do you have a faith that actually like is a part of you, not just something you know, not something that's at a distance, but is so intimate and close that you've experienced it. You don't just possess it, it possesses you. And we have love, love that is actually active and real, that shows itself in the way that we treat other people. He says, these are the two of the anchor points that every real Christian will have. You want to know if you've got fake faith or not? Do you have evidence of these two things? And then he gives us the third anchor point. It's hope based on trust in what? Based on trust in what? Hope uh, is a tricky word for us as Americans. Uh, we use the word hope uh, differently than the Bible uses the word hope, okay? Let me explain. I'll give you an illustration. Last night, uh, Tate and I were watching the Gold Cup game U.S. against Jamaica, okay? Jamaica got a goal in the first half. They'd been up almost all the first half, one nothing. Uh, the whole second half, their goalie was unbelievable, stopping everything that the U.S. was trying to put in. Less than five minutes to go. I think it was like three minutes left. And at that point, all Jamaica has to do is kind of stall kick the ball around, kick it out, kick it long. And, and Tayton said something like, man, I hope that the U.S. can score a goal. And I was like, bro, me too. I happened to be on social media, and Tayton and I were watching the game at about a 10-minute delay. And so I was on social media, and while there was still five minutes to go on the game... I saw that the final score was one-to-one. -one. So when Tayton says, 
I hope they score a goal. Tayton's actually just talking about wishful thinking. Like, I hope it doesn't rain Tuesday. I want to go to the beach. That's how we as Americans use the word hope. It's usually another way of wishful thinking. When I said to Tayton, yeah, buddy, I hope they score a goal too, I'm using biblical hope. Because I already know that the end of the game is 1-1. You see, I've been shared the revealed future, even though I haven't seen it yet, I know it's happening, and so my hope is based on, not wishful thinking, my hope is based on a revealed future. That's the difference between how we as Americans usually use the word hope and how the Bible uses the word hope. You see, that's the third anchor point. It's not just a faith that I have consumed, but also has consumed me. It's not just a love that shows itself that I'm actually more loving to individuals and how I treat them and care for them and and lay my life down and sacrifice for them. It's also this hope that I have that transforms how I live because the future has been revealed to me now. I already know how the game's gonna end. You can live with wishful thinking and just sit around fretting all the time and being anxious like, ah, are they going to score? They're not going to do it. They're probably going to lose. Or you can already know the outcome and say, yo, 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 chill, relax, enjoy yourself, wait for it, watch this. That's biblical hope. We live in a culture where you're going to be pulled and pressed all different kinds of ways. There will be times that you will have doubts. There will be times that you will even begin to question, man, is this Christianity thing true? Is it real? Is it actually transforming my life? Look, friends, the way you're gonna know is to take a look at those three anchor points. If they're there, they will hold you firm. Even in the midst of despair, midst of hardship, difficulty, Look, I don't know what you walked in these doors with today. You might have just gotten a diagnosis this past week from your doctor that is rocking your world right now. Your relationship may be on the skids. You may have just lost your job. You may be unsure what the future is going to hold. Paul says these three anchor points of faith and love and hope, hope that's not simply wishful thinking, but that's based on a revealed future. If you have those three anchor points, you will hold fast no matter what. I read an article just a couple of days ago about the ideal anchor points for a boat in a hurricane. I don't know any boat that has three anchors, but literally this article from Sailing Something magazine said the ideal anchor points for a boat to survive a hurricane is three anchors, 120 degrees from each other with the boat in the middle. And friends, if you will take those three anchors of faith and hope and love and not just view them as some churchy word or some cute thing to put on a driftwood, right? but actually ask God, Lord, which of these needs to grow in my life? Which of these needs to 
strengthen and develop. I promise you, no matter what comes your way, you will hold fast. So what I want to do as we close right now, so I'm going to ask Elise to come out, and she's just going to pad a little bit underneath, and I just want you to close your eyes. I just want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want you to sit with Jesus. I want you to give him permission to reveal to you of those three, which one or two needs to be strengthened. And then I just want you to ask him with whatever faith you can muster up this morning to help you strengthen those one or two areas. Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's just one, but what is that? Let God talk to you. We want to make room for him to do whatever he needs to in this series this summer.